Could anybody not hear Josh? I was thinking, man, I'm glad he's not wearing a microphone. Well done, Josh. We'll sign you up for another one. <laughs> All right, hey, as they're, as they're leaving, we're going to return to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, recall last week, we ventured into 1 John chapter 4, and we began to read and dissect together verses 7 through 11. 1 John, not the Gospel John, but 1 John. Start in the back of the Bible, get to Revelation, start turning forward, come to Jude, 3rd. 2nd and 1st John in that particular order. Moving forward, we'll get you in 1st John chapter 4. Again, we're going to read and consider one more time verses 7 through 11. Because last week, as we looked into this text and read it, we found that John gives us, as he's talking about love, three spiritual truths. We revealed what those three truths were. We will again today. But we only had time to expand upon the very first of the three. So today we go back to it and we reveal the remaining two spiritual truths. But before we do that, remember the first. The first spiritual truth of the three was that love has its source. It is in God. God is the epitome. He is the model. He is the image of love. We found it is his nature. Just as God is love, it is his very nature to exhibit and to possess and to give love. We had a theme last week that said, just as light radiates from the sun, so then does love radiate from God's very nature. That was the theme we had for last week to remind us that love has a source, it is from God. But not only is love from God and that be his nature, we also talked about how love from God is unconditional. And in that regard, we also said that God's love for us is motivated by who he is, not by anything that we are or that we do. Because we, at the core, are still just filthy, dirty rags. We're sinners, rebellious people. There's nothing that we can do in our life to get so cleaned up to cause or to make God love us. Yet he does anyway. Because he is love. It's his nature. Love has its source. It is God. That was the first spiritual truth of the three that we had from last week. Today we go back one more time and we'll talk about the other remaining two spiritual truths. But before we do that, let's go back and read the word one more time. So stand with me as we do so to simply honor the reading of the word. Again, it is 1 John chapter 4. We have verses 7 through 11. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among his Son, that God sent his only Son into the world so we might live through him. Verse 10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And finally, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Father, Lord, thank you for all your blessings you give to us. Lord, thank you for your love that you give to us, that you offer to every person in this entire world. 
Let us receive that love. Reflect upon that love. And let us receive the message then, talking about the love you offer us today, and truly reflect upon it. Let us not take it for granted. Let us cherish it. Let us be thankful for it. So, Lord, lead and guide and direct us today with this message pertaining to your love that you offer to us. And reveal those truths for us to consider and apply to our lives in the day that we have. So, thank you, Lord, for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you're being seated, I think it's right that we briefly go back and expand a little bit upon the two remaining truths, yes, but before we do that, let us kind of set the context one more time, because you may remember from last week, or maybe you heard it later, that the, the time frame is approximately 85 to 90 AD. It is the time before that John gets sent to be exiled to Patmos. So at this moment, He's actually leading the church at Ephesus, and he is troubled while he's leading at this new, younger generation of believers who are beginning to fall away from the truth. It's troubled him that they have seemingly faith, they seemingly receive the truth, but it troubles him that they seem to be falling away. Now, remember again, like we mentioned last week, that this new generation of believers truly is a new generation. It is approximately again 85 to 90 A.D., which means it has been years, many years, since Jesus has died. Since, his, since the people had seen him risen, there's been many years. Now, this new generation has never seen that. They've never heard Jesus speak. So this new generation only knows about Jesus that's been given to them from what they've learned or passed down from their parents or loved ones. Also, we should know this new generation then the Christians, as they begin to have some doubt of their faith and of the truth, never seen or heard of Jesus, is also then not exercising or practicing love as they should be. Now, I mentioned that last week. I was thinking about it again this week. And I thought I would show you that that's not conjecture. That's just not me speculating upon the fact that they may not be illustrating love, which is why John is writing this letter. It actually is evidence of the fact that they have lost their first love. Because John, remember, is leading the church at Ephesus. Later, in just a few years, in fact, John will be exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, at Patmos, John receives a vision, and he writes Revelation. But in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, he is instructed to write to seven churches. What is the first church that he writes to? Ephesus. And he writes to Ephesus, note what he tells them in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 4. He says that he received word from the Lord. He said to the church at Ephesus, the one he was leading before, I have this against you, says the Lord, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. So this new generation of Christians, maybe they're confused, maybe they have doubt, they seemingly have lost their faith or beginning to consider losing the faith. I mean, it's starting to happen to them. And he says, look, you've lost your first love. So John takes a moment, not only to correct the heresy that's happening in the church, but specifically address the love they should be having for each other and certainly the love they should have continually for the Lord. That's the new young generation in which he's writing to, that they've lost their love. 
Now, when you think about that, this new young generation that John is writing to, to let them know that they should be continuing to love our Lord, it's really not much unlike today. I mean, people today, even believers, at times begin to lose their first love, their love for Christ. Or we sometimes just take it for granted. And for many people, it seems that their love for Christ is becoming stale or maybe it's becoming complacent. I mean, it's just kind of stagnant. It's not seemingly flickering and not the bright, the bright burning flame it once was, like a candle starting to lose its flame or a fire is growing cold. So we can maybe relate to these group of believers that's receiving this letter that maybe they've lost their first love. Maybe our love for Christ has somehow, some way become stagnant. Maybe it's complacent. Maybe it needs to be revived. And we can also relate to them because we too have then never seen or heard Jesus. So again, in this situation then, as we go back from the context now to the textual situation that we're reading here, John takes a moment to write to these believers. And we can receive it in modern day because it still speaks to us about the love that comes from God. He is the source. The love we should have for each other and certainly continue to have the love for our Lord Jesus. Which brings us back full circle then to our spiritual truths. Remember the first one was love has its source. It is from God. And then the second is love is manifested in Jesus. It is verses 9 and 10 particularly verse 9 first. There's a lot to expand upon the verses 9 and 10, but go back with me to verse 9 to begin and look at one particular word, the word manifest. It says, in this love of God was made manifest. I mean, to manifest something means to make it visible or to make it known. So the question really becomes at this moment then, well, how did God make his love for us? How did he make it known? How did he make it visible? Well, somehow we don't know the answer. John tells us it in the verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. So the second spiritual truth tells us that love is manifested, love is made known, love is made visible in Jesus. God's love is seen in the sending of his son so that we might have eternal life through him. It is the greatness of his love that he has for us. And in considering the greatness of God's love he has for us, he reveals four special ways in which we receive the greatness of his love. And the first of the four is this. It was God's love that caused the mission of sending his son. Look with me quickly, either behind me or in your Bible, to 1 John 4, 9, which is one we're kind of emphasizing, and then compare that somehow, some way, to the ever-popular John 3, 16. As you look at those verses, whether it's going back and forth in your Bible or behind me, you see those verses are written very, very similar. I mean, strikingly similar about the wording in each of those three verses. The popular John 3.16, which a lot of us memorize in the beginning of our Christian walk. And now 1 John 4.9, very, very similar. But note one thing is different. In the writing, John is writing both. But in John 3.16, he says, 
that God so loved the world, he gave. God gave his son. But in 1 John 4, 9, look with me and find that John changes the wording slightly. It says that God sent his son into the world. Very interesting, very similar. Only a slight little difference, if you will, in the wording. John 3, 16, God gave his son. 1 John 4, 9, God sent his son. What an observation. But does that mean anything? Does it mean anything that God sent or that God gave his son? Well, to give is to cause someone to have something. To send or sent, which is past tense, is to have conveyed or delivered something to someone. Maybe an example will help out. I have in my hand here a check for $100, okay? I'm going to bring it. I'm going to walk off the stage and bring someone a check for $100. Anybody ready to get the check? Jesse's reaching already. So I'm going to bring a check to somebody, not Jesse. I'm walking towards Ray. I'm going to give Ray a check for $100. You, you seem all too eager. Oh, I'm going to give it to you. Now I'm going to give you a check for $100, okay, which then allowed you to receive or allowed you to receive and caused you to have something. I caused you to have something. I gave it to you, okay? But I just took it back, didn't I? So rather than let you have it and give it to you, I'm going to walk back up here, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to get an envelope. I don't have an envelope with me, but if I had an envelope, I would put it in the envelope, this $100 check, and I would send it to you in the mail. So I could give it to you and allow you to have it, cause you to have it, or I could put it in an envelope and send it to you. I can give or I can send. But what's the difference? Either way, you're still getting the $100. You're still the recipient of it. So make that connection then back to the text. Because whether God sent or whether God gave his son, the result is still the same. We still receive his son. God sent his son. God gave his son. I mean, the world then has received the most special gift we could ever receive. And then it tells us that God made his gift of love manifest in his son Jesus. Doesn't matter if he gave it or whether he sent it. His love for you and me caused, it provided the mission, the sending, the giving of his son Jesus so we can have eternal life. That is the first aspect of his love. Doesn't matter if we send it or give it, we must receive it. Either way, it's the same. It's the first aspect of the greatness of his love. And the second aspect of the greatness of his love is the fact that God sent his only son. His only son. But God did not send Abraham. He didn't look upon Moses and say, Moses, go back one more time to those silly people. He didn't say, Moses, you go. He didn't even say, one of the other prophets. He didn't even send an angel. Who did he send? He sent or gave his only son. Now, interestingly, preparing for this morning, I considered the Greek text because the Greek text does it so much differently than our English. Now, the English does do a good job. The ESV that we read from accurately states, as you go back and look at verse 9, that God sent his only son. It tells us his only son. God didn't send some flunky, didn't send Moses. 
Does anybody else? God sent his only son. But the Greek makes it much more emphatic that he sent or he gave his only son. The Greek text would word it this way in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that his son, his only son, God sent into the world. So we might live through him. Just a little more extra wording in the Greek text makes it much more evident that he gave us his only son, not anyone else, his only son and his only son. Only his son and his only son did God send, which is just another aspect of the greatness of God's love for us. But then there's a third aspect of the greatness of God's love for us. The purpose of sending his son so that we might live through him. It's the end of verse 9. Reveals to us that Jesus offers every one of us life. We are dead. We are dying in our sin. Paul stated correctly in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this Lord. We every day die in our sin. Paul declared even in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in the Christ Jesus our Lord. Every day we die a little more and a little more. Our sin that we have in our life actually causes our death. But the good news is that we have hope of eternal life. And the only hope of eternal life is forgiveness of our sin and relationship with God through his only son, his only son, Jesus. That's the fourth, that's the third aspect of the greatness of God's love. And in the fourth, the final aspect this morning that we consider of the greatness of God's love made manifest and known in Jesus is that God sent his son, Jesus, to be the propitiation of our sins. God sent or gave his son, Jesus, for the propitiation of our sins. Now, the big word that stands out there is what? Propitiation. Propitiation. What does that even mean, propitiation? Well, I looked it up and found that the word that we use in English, propitiation, actually originates from the Latin word propitio or propitiare which means then to appease or to gain favor. To appease or to gain favor. So then we could take the Latin in which it originates, make the English word, and say it means this. Propitiation then is an action meant to regain someone's favor or make up for something you did wrong. It is an action meant to regain someone's favor or make up for something you did wrong. Now, while we don't use the word propitiation, at least I don't in everyday language, I mean, I don't get on my phone and text Sheila, I have a propitiation, which i got to make up to you. I need to regain favor. I don't text her that word. I don't think that anybody in here uses the word propitiation in a text message, do you? But yet, it would be right for us to actually use the word in this particular context because we could use it correctly 
if we said something like this. Suggest, for example, that Levi or Isaac or Melia or Ellie or Jackson or Micah, which is not in here right now. I'm looking around, making sure I got all the teenagers. Suppose they're out and they realize they're going to be late getting home. When I was their age, I had a curfew and I had to be home by a certain time. So if they're not driving yet, but soon will be, and no Ellie and maybe Amelia is driving, if they are late somewhere, doing some things, going to get home, it would be correct to use the word propitiation in this way. Oh, no. I'm going to be late getting home. My parents, they're going to be so upset with me for breaking curfew and coming home late. I better find a way to make propitiation for them. I gotta find a way to regain favor because in fact I'm gonna be late. So remember that word, Ellie, when you get late coming home, propitiation. Propitiation. Don't know what you're talking about. That you get out of jail free card. Propitiation. It's also correct to use it this way. Suppose y'all ladies went out for an afternoon shopping. All right? As you're shopping, you begin to find, you know, a few things that you maybe will consider to buy. But then you begin to think, oh, no, I may have spent a little too much. So then it would be right to use the word this way. Girls, my husband is really going to get mad when I get home because he finds out how much I spent on this purse and these shoes. I had to have them. So when he finds out how much I spent on these items, I better find a way to make propitiation, regain favor. For something I did wrong, I spent too much money. That would be the correct way to use the word. So it can happen for teenagers. It can happen for women, but they have to make propitiation. And I must admit, it can happen to men, even me. I know. Let me give you the example. Bear with me. I had to make propitiation to Sheila. Here it is. Back in the late 90s, I think it was like 1999, I was a plant manager working over in uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi. And as I became the plant manager, I was super excited that one day a vendor come to me and said, Kurt, we have an opportunity. We want to allow you to go on a deer hunting trip in Junction, Texas, the hill country. I thought, man, I'm up for that. I can do that. And he said, well, get your rifle, get your gear, and let's go. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I don't have a rifle. I've been hunting in Indiana all my life, and you can't, at that time, you could not use rifles. You could only use shotguns during the firearm season. So I'm thinking to myself, man, I really want to go. It's a trip of a lifetime. I don't know if I'm going to get to go again. I got to go. So I was telling my boss about the fact that we get to go on this trip. Didn't have a rifle. He said I could borrow his, but that wasn't the right thing to do. I thought, I might need a rifle someday. So I said, hey, where can I get a rifle at? He said, man, there's a lot of gun shops here in Jackson, Mississippi. Let me take you to one. So we went to Jackson, Mississippi and found a wonderful gun shop. I mean, the whole thing is full of guns and rifles, handguns, everything. So I walk in there like a kid in a candy store, and I'm looking at it. My eyes getting big, and I'm thinking, oh, man, so much to choose from. How to narrow this down? He said, are you going to the junction, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you may have a shot at 100 to 150 yards away, and maybe you need a 270. 
I said, okay, I'll consider 270. He said, what do you have? He said, I got a 280. I said, well, let's look at the 270s. So I looked at the 270 caliber rifle. I found, look at, listen, y'all, I found a Remington Model 700 synthetic stock stainless steel 270 caliber rifle. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. I need this. I need this. So then I looked at the rifle. I picked it up. I handled it a little bit and growing even more attached to it. And I thought, well, it's got no, it's got no scope on it. And well, we got a variety of scopes. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah. So I looked around. And I found this Bushnell 50 millimeter 3 by 10 variable scope looked nice on top of the gun. So then I'm thinking, wow, this is, I need this too. You're right. So I'm thinking, I've got it. I've got it. He puts it all together, gets ready to put it in the box. I said, I can carry that out. So I pay for it, and I'm getting ready to think, and I thought, wait a minute. There's no problem here. Is there a problem here? No, there's no problem here. I got what I came for. I came, I received a Remington Model 700 synthetic stock, stainless steel barrel, Bushnell, 50 millimeter, 3x10, variable scope on top of it, a Gurum among all guns. I still love it today. So there's no problem. I got what I needed. Yeah, the purse and the shoes, right. So I got what I needed. I got home. And I'm thinking, oh, no, there is a problem. The problem, which didn't occur in my mind at the time, is I spent over $1,000 on this gun. So then, what am I thinking? I'm thinking, man, I am in serious trouble when Sheila finds out the price tag of this beauty I have in my hand. I spent way too much on this rifle, so I better make propitiation regain favor for what I have done. Propitiation is an action meant to regain someone's favor or make up for something that you have done wrong. With God, we do plenty of wrong. All the time we do wrong with God. We offend him. We sin. We even have evil desires unless these things happen. So because of that, God sent. He gave his only son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins, to make it right so that we could regain favor. God sent Jesus, his only son, so that we could be forgiven of our sinfulness. Jesus became the propitiation, the action taken so that we could regain favor for the things that we do wrong, the sin we have in our life. That is another wonderful dimension in the greatness of God's love he has for us. Because think about this. How easy would it be for God to look down upon us and absolutely despise his creation based upon our sinfulness and our rebellion? I mean, how easy it would be for him to look down upon us and just not want to love us. But that's not God. I mean, he's understandable. I mean, he loves us and we abuse that love which makes us really not any different at all than the Israelites. They received God's love even as a chosen people. They were like us in some way. 
rebellious and sinful. I mean, there's plenty of examples in Scripture. There was the incident in Exodus 32 with the golden calf where they have this idolatry. There is the pagan practices that where they had witchcraft in 2 Kings chapter 17. I mean, it continues on and on and on throughout Scripture. In fact, Paul, in the second letter to his Corinthian church, reminded them of some of the infractions he says in, or actually the first Corinthian letter, in chapter 10, verse 6 through 11. He said, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So he says, do not be idolaters as they were. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sex immorality as they did. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. I mean, he continues to go on and on about all the things that were done and that we still do. We're just like the Israelites in that we continue to have evil desires, sinful, rebellious people. But as I mentioned last week, God loves us anyway. Despite our rebellion, our evil, and sinfulness, he still loves us. His love for us was so great that even in our sinfulness, God sent his only son to the world so we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sin. John writes to make sure that this new generation of believers that we can also apply to our lives recognize and understand that love has its source in God and that love is manifested, made known, made visible in Jesus. And then thirdly, we find then that John reminds all of us that love is commanded to one another. It is verse 11. It's the beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, so also should we ought to love one another. Which means when we truly understand what God has done for each, each and every one of us and how much he loves us, we must love one another. When we truly understand how much he loves us and all he sacrificed for us, it almost demands that we love one another, that we must love one another. We notice in verse 9, even as I worded that, that it's written as an application point for all of us in the form of a command. As in, if we did not love others, then it would be a sin not to. It would be sin not to love one another. The key word in verse uh, 11 which points us to the fact that it's written really as a directive or command, is that little word ought. Ought. Ought is often expressed as a verb, which means it is morally right to do a particular thing or that it is morally right for a particular situation to exist. Which means this, it is morally right for us to love one another, just as God loved us. But we must go further to make sure we understand that we should love one another. Because we should understand this, that we could say it this way. It's an obligation for us to love one another. It's like a duty that we should love one another. A directive, a command. 
love one another. Dr. David Allen maybe says it best. He says the little word ought in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 means obligation. Some Christians view loving others all the time as optional. Love is not optional. It is obligatory. We are under moral obligations to love one another. It is our divine duty. If the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart and love neighbor as ourselves, then the greatest sin is not to do it. Godlike, godlike living demands godlike loving. I like the words of Dr. Allen because I think he states it perfectly. That love is not optional. It is an expectation. It is a command. It is a duty. And it happens to be our duty to love one another. It's our duty to love one another. But there itself is a problem, isn't it? The problem is that some people, even some Christians, some people are just hard to love. Some people are just really hard to love. Sheila and I recently started watching Survivor. I've really never watched the show. It's been on like 40 episodes or something. And I've really never watched the show. 40 seasons, and now we started watching it. So as I began to watch it, I began to recognize the entire intent of Survivor is that CBS airs this show so that 16 contestants are taken to this remote island, done all kinds of silly challenges so that someone can receive $1 million and be titled the sole survivor. That's the entire intent of the show. So they have to eliminate people so someone can be left as the sole survivor and win the million. So in the show, the contestants are given all kinds of challenges to perform. The challenges themselves are the method in which someone gets eliminated. The entire premise is that ultimately, someone wins the challenge, thereby granting immunity to them, which means they can't be eliminated. They go to a tribal council. The others have to vote who's going to be eliminated because they've lost. But the person has immunity, you can't vote for. They get an automatic three days before the next set of challenges. But in the show, as all this is happening, there's all kinds of backstabbing and lying and cheating. I mean, it would just make Satan have a smile on his face for everything that's happened on the island. In that regard, I can't stand the show because it just makes Satan smile. Look, all these people are lying, cheating, deceitful of each other. There's no love evident anywhere. All they're after is the money and do anything possible to get it. There's no love evident. A lot of people truly despise one another. They express some great dislike, some hatred, not at all practicing any kind of divine love for one another. I understand it's a show of entertainment, but at the same time, it also reveals real-life situations that exist, meaning that we find in our lives as we're living them, for whatever reason, some people we just don't like. We just don't like them for whatever reason. Love them? Uh-uh, no way. I can't even desire to be in the same room with them. Why would I want to love them? That just happens in our life. 
But then there's the problem that John presents to us because he writes it like a command. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the problem. Just some people can't seem to be want to love them. We don't like them, so we can't love them. But here's the thing we must hear, must know. The love is not predicated on like. Love is not even predicated on an agreement. For that matter, love is not even based upon a reciprocal arrangement. Love for others, regardless of any life situation, should grow out of love that God has for us and that we can then have for other people. Which means through Jesus, and really only through Jesus alone, can we actually have love for people and whom we don't like or to whom we don't agree? It's not based upon like, but yet we must love anyway. And picture, if you will, the upper room, the night when Jesus was dining with his disciples, the Last Supper, if you will. In the Last Supper, we know that there was an instance in which they were all casually dining, reclined at the table. They were maybe laughing, joking, having that time of fellowship and camaraderie that you seemed to enjoy. But then Jesus gets up. John 13 talks about the fact that Jesus suddenly gets up as reclining with his disciples. He gets up, wraps the towel around him, and he goes to wash the feet, the ceremonial washing the feet of the disciples. If you go back later and read John 13, you're going to find that really quickly. Be reminded that Jesus knew. Judas had already in his heart decided to betray the Lord. When all this is happening at the Last Supper, when Jesus gets up to wash his feet, Judas already had in his heart to betray the Lord. So as Jesus walking around about to wash the disciples' feet, did he not love Judas anymore and exclude him from the ceremony? No. Jesus loved Judas anyway. Even he knew what was about to happen. And interestingly enough, when you read John 13, you eventually come to verse 34, which says this, then Jesus worded this, a new commandment I give to all of you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. Now, all about you. That seems pretty similar to what John just wrote that we just read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Very similar in the wording between what Jesus just said and what John wrote later in this letter concerning love. Sounds very similar. In fact, now we maybe even know where John got the idea. It didn't originate from some pie-in-the-sky theory he had about how it would be wonderful peace on earth for people to love one another. John got the idea straight from Jesus when he gave the commandment. You love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. It's a divine command that we should love one another. Love is commanded to one another. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As you hear that, maybe you're thinking this thing. Well, yeah, but that was so easy for Jesus. 
I mean, it's so easy for him to love other people. I mean, it's Jesus. I mean, for that matter, he didn't have to worry about someone not liking him when there's nobody that didn't like Jesus. Everybody liked Jesus. I mean, he didn't have any enemies. Oh, really? Because Jesus had plenty of enemies. Remember the Pharisees? They regarded Jesus truly as an enemy. So there were people who didn't like Jesus. But at the same time, he loved them anyway. In fact, Jesus, as he got ready to speak the Sermon on the Mount, talked about how we should love our enemies. He had enemies. He said, love them anyway. We all have enemies. Love them anyway. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, you heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Love one another. So then what becomes the excuse for us not loving others? What becomes the excuse for us to disobey the command? I was like, oh, no, but you don't know. You don't know these people like that. I mean, they're loud. They're obnoxious. They're lazy. I mean, they're real. I mean, they're a different gender than I am. They're, they're a different color of skin than I have. I mean, you just don't know them like I know them. And I don't like them. I mean, I don't like them even based on the fact that they are Cubs fans and I'm a Cardinal fan. You know, it seems it's interesting that we can find any possible reason not to like somebody. But love is not predicated on like. It's a command that we have to one another. You know, we should be professional. We should want to be obedient to the point where we could follow and obey this command to love other people, despite what they may look like or where they come from. You know, funny thing about sports, when we start thinking about professional sports, okay, professional sports, we have to remind ourselves at times, because it is just a game, but we have to remind ourselves when we're watching professional sports that they are professionals, that they are not amateurs. They graduated to the next level where they're actually professionals at the sport in which they're engaging, which they're playing, whether it be baseball, soccer, basketball, football, don't matter what it is. They're professionals. They're not amateurs. They are professionals at what they do. And we need to make that same parallel into our lives, that we should be professional, obedient Christians, not amateurs, only going through the motions. We don't need amateur Christians. Believe me, there's plenty of them. We need obedient, professional-type Christians. A professional, obedient Christian fulfills the command to love others. They understand the love God has for them. Even in our dreadful, evil, desire, lustful heart that we're living in. An obedient Christian, not an amateur, knows and understands. In verse 11, when John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When it comes to loving, we should not be amateurs. We should not make excuses. Love others just as we've all been loved. 
how much have you been loved? We started this message last week on Valentine's Day. Instead, if we were not actually recipient of Valentine's Day gift, we didn't have to be because we've been received love. We've been recipient of love anyway, the best love. So how much love have you been given? John tells us, he said, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. If God so loved us, and he does, then we ought to love one another and make no excuses. We also need to recognize as we begin to close here that if we truly love others, and we should be, the greatest act of love we will ever show to someone is to tell them about the love of Christ. The greatest act of love we will ever show someone is to tell them about the love of Christ. Do we love people enough to share the love of Christ with them? Or to somehow, some way, do we make an excuse to not share that love at a particular moment? The greatest act of love we could ever show to anyone is to share the love of Christ with them. Love others so much that you share the gospel with them. They may refuse. They may say, no, not now. But you love them to the point where you shared the gospel with them. The greatest act of love you could ever show to anyone. The fact is that Christ died for every man every woman and every child it is a love greater than any other. And it is our duty to share this love to others. Charles Spurgeon was known as a prince of preachers. He actually said in one of his sermons, he said, go forth at once and try and make reconciliation, not only between yourself and your friend, but between every man and God. Let that be your object. Christ has become man's reconciliation. And we are to try and bring this reconciliation to every poor sinner that comes our way. We don't have the capability. We don't have the ability, the ability to know whether someone truly has received Christ. But yet, it's our duty, our love for someone, which should direct us to want to share that love with them. So the point they could receive the love of Christ in their life. So the final words of this message for us before we lay it to rest is to place the love of Jesus first and foremost in our heart and then share the love of Jesus with others. We learn in this letter from John that God is love. Love has its source. It is God. Love is manifested in Jesus. And love is commanded on our part to one another. Father, Lord, thank you for this message this day, Lord, that you've given to us. We are thankful today, Lord, for your love. We are thankful for the message which directs us to how we need to share your love with others. So, Lord, we just pray for our church. We pray for one another. We pray for brothers and sisters, family here together. 
Lord, that you allow us then to share this love. Provide opportunity, Lord, for us to love others. It may seem like a weird, a weird request. But Lord, grant us the opportunity to share the love you've given for all of us to others. And let's be thankful for the very love you've given to all of us. May your recipients, Lord, we're grateful. We're very thankful. So Lord, give us an opportunity to love others as you loved us through your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.